What a great opportunity for us to make an impact, uh, a, a significant financial impact uh, in the world. And, uh, and I know that it does take money. Um, but I want to remind you, you that you likely have it. You see, there are lots of ways to measure relative wealth in the world. We could compare our uh, national GDP, gross domestic product, with the rest of the world. If we did, we'd find that we are first, almost twice as much as whoever's number two on the list. We could compare our average per capita income uh, with the rest of the world, and again, well, we'd, we'd be first. There are other formulas, like purchasing power parity, which divides the GDP by the uh, the, the population of the country, and even by that measure, and we're a large country, we are in the top 10. We could go to sites like Global Rich List, and I encourage you to do that. Write that down. Go to globalrichlist.com where you can enter your annual income, and it will rank you with the rest of the world. Did a little figuring on that. I found that if you make just over $33,000 a year, which I suppose many of us here do, then you are in the top 1% of the world. All this talk about the one percenters. I have news for you. You're a one percenter, likely. Truth is, no matter how you measure it, gross domestic product, average per capita income, purchasing power parity, uh, gross national income, national median income, average discretionary, that's kind of an important one, discretionary income, on and on the, the measurements go. Americans are among the wealthiest people in the world ever. That's not to say that we don't have our poor. We do. And that is not to make us feel guilty, like being wealthy is a sin. It is not. But it does give us enormous responsibility. Anyone with any historical, economic, and spiritual sense would attribute our relative national wealth to God. As this country was built on Christian, as a Christian nation on biblical principles, God has richly Blessed our nation. For what? I share this with you because we arrive at a text uh, this morning in our almost completed study of 1 Timothy that, that actually applies to most, to most of us here. But the problem is when we hear this text, I haven't read it yet, but when we hear it, we're, we're tempted to dismiss it because, well, I, I'm not rich. In fact, yesterday we had a... We had a, uh, a, a shower here yesterday morning and a bunch of ladies here, and so I thought I'd help clean up at the end. I was here, and so one of, one of the ladies, to remain unmentioned, but she's a pastor's wife, married to Doug, asked me, so what are you, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, I'm talking to rich people. She said, I don't have to be here then. That's what we think. I'm just middle class. I'm not the 1%. I'm in the 99%, so go talk to the one percenters. Got news for you, I am talking to the one percenters. It was that period of time when people were camping around decrying the wealth of the one percent. It's kind of interesting that if we looked at it on a global basis, they were, they were decrying themselves. 
I'm not going to get into all the political ramifications of the movement. I'm simply going to suggest that it, as we read this text, I want you to listen, this applies to us. We are, by almost any measure, extremely rich. Just watched the video, heard a presentation about how a few dollars a month of our discretionary income, you know, like cell phone uh, copy money, would care for a child. And you, and you say, but so, there's so, like millions of 300 million who need our help. Why don't, we, why don't we not think about that big number? Why don't we think about the one or two that you can help? Let's read the text. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and following. Interesting, it falls on this day called Compassion Sunday. Instruct those who are rich. Checking out yet? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and and ready to share, storing up for themselves the the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's been a couple of weeks, a few weeks since we've been in our study, but I trust that we remember that, that Paul is addressing, among other things, false teachers in the church at Ephesus. He'd left Timothy there to deal with his problem, to set things in order. A few, few weeks ago, we found that these false teachers saw godliness. <laughs> they saw the ministry as a means of financial gain. They saw the ministry as a means of, of getting rich. Can you imagine that anybody would actually like do that today? He set them straight. Godliness with contentment. Godliness coupled with contentment, that's where real gain is. Being content with what God provides, coupled with contentment, true gain. And and then he had some rather strong things to say to those who want to get rich materially, like false teachers then and today, who, who make it life's ambition to attain well, this your goal in life to be rich? You need to pay attention. He said, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare in many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. If you make this your pursuit, you, you are headed towards certain destruction. So he went on to tell Timothy, I want you to flee from these things. Don't be sucked in by what these guys are doing. Don't be sucked into the materialism and consumerism of the day. Don't pursue money. Don't make that your goal in life. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, now, we finished reading that, and, and, and we could come away with the idea that money, being rich, is itself sinful. And in fact, some have concluded that. They, they have taken vows of poverty as a means to personal godliness. They've suggested if you really want to be spiritual, then you've got to get rid of any uh, and all forms of wealth. You've got to pursue poverty. Uh, remember, there's even the, the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Remember that guy? He came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, well, you know the commandments. And he named six of them. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, things like that. Um, go, go keep them. And, and the rich young ruler said, all of these I have kept since my youth. I've kept, 
I've kept the law. And Jesus looked at him and said, well, actually you haven't. Uh, we won't get into that. But there is one that you really messed up on. One thing you lack, the tenth one, don't covet. So go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. And, and we read the man went away sorrowful because he had lots of stuff. He was you see, very rich. You, 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 really, you want me to give up my stuff to be your follower? No, I just want you to see that, that I am your greatest treasure. Well, we can read stuff like this passage we read a few weeks ago, a rich young ruler, and think that in order to be spiritual, in order to be a follower of Christ, I need to be poor. I, I, I've got to give everything away to follow Jesus, maybe. Maybe. God might call you to give every, everything away. But, but Paul got to the end of this particular letter, and having just pegged the false teachers, in fact, everyone who makes it their goal in life to be rich, and he begins to address, well, he begins to address those who are already rich. Maybe after writing that wonderful doxology, he's getting ready to close the letter. That's a good ending for it. He takes time. He asks his amendment, his secretary, why don't you read that back to me to see how it sounds. And he thought, oh, wow, I better, I better address another group in the church. I better address the rich. What about those who are already wealthy? What about all those whom God apparently blesses with material possessions? What about all of those, you know, 20th and 21st century American Christians? Again, my goal, Paul's goal, is not to make you feel guilty about God's blessing in your life. We, we do not want to swing to the other side and, and, and pursue a, well, well, an asceticism, a false asceticism, like the false teachers were also promoting. It's kind of odd when you consider what, what they were teaching. They were saying, on the one hand, you say no to certain foods and drinks and, and, and to marriage, by the way, uh, but they then themselves were pursuing riches. And we find in 2 Timothy, they're actually pursuing immoral lifestyles. So, so what we have here are two extremes that we want to av avoid, both false teaching, by the way. We don't want to pursue godliness to get rich. You know, God prospers the righteous, so let's be righteous to get rich. Sound familiar? And we don't want to hold out poverty as some spiritual ideal. Again, we fall into the same trap as the false teachers. And, and we remember that Paul earlier said, God created all these things uh, to be gratefully received, gratefully shared in. Now, even in this passage, he says, God supplies us with all things to enjoy. So there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's no, nothing wrong with possessions. <laughs> Although we do remember that we're supposed to be content with food and, and shelter, uh, comfortable with what we have. What we need to achieve here this morning is a balance in the Christian life where we don't pursue poverty and we don't pursue wealth. We enjoy what he provides, but we don't live in self-indulgence. Say that again. We enjoy what he provides, but we don't live in self-indulgence. Because I want to say to you this morning that there is a greater treasure. There's a greater treasure. And so... What does he tell us here? He tells us who are rich how to rightly handle our wealth with a future investment in mind. It's the outline as we 
finally jump into the text. We're going to see what the rich should not do and then what the rich should do. You probably ought to take notes this morning. And then where the rich should invest, starting with what the rich should not do. Now, again, these are words for us as a people who are, frankly, better off than most of the world, most of the world ever. Here's what you should not do. Two things to avoid. First, Paul says, instruct, urge. And remember, Paul's writing to young Timothy, who's a pastor. And so I look at this and, and, I, and, 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 and I'm going, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to instruct rich people. Well, that's you. Encourage you in this present world not to be conceited. Uh, By the way, uh, Paul uses the word rich four times in this passage. It's kind of play on words. It's a noun, a verb, an adjective, and an adverb. Uh, It's an intentional play on words that we are supposed to notice, supposed to grab our attention. Not only that, he he contrasts uh, this present life in verse 17 with the future life. Contrast verses 17 and 19. We'll come back to that. But first notice he says, do not be conceited. That's a compound word that speaks of arrogance. It speaks literally of thinking lofty or exalted thoughts about yourself. And we all know that rich people have a tendency to be arrogant. To boast in what they have and who they are. To think themselves superior because they are rich. Like that ESPN sports reporter last week. You didn't see it? You didn't go Google it? (laughs) She got in lots of trouble. She was at a party or something and her car was towed and she went and picked it up and right under a camera there she berates the lady who is taking her money to get she's taking her money to get her car back and and she demeans her because of who she is and who she is rich people think they deserve better treatment greater respect special attention for their station in life paul says Don't think too highly of yourselves. Remember, the only reason you are rich is because God made you so. And he did that for a reason. We'll come to that. Let's remember, let's remember, folks, we are rich, so don't be arrogant. If you have ever done any international travel, I've been privileged to do a little bit of that. If you've ever done any international travel, you have likely seen fellow Americans acting embarrassingly arrogant. They are rich. They deserve. No, they demand special treatment. Paul says, first of all, don't be conceited. As believers, recognize who you are, where you you are because of God's rich blessing in your life. You are no better. You are no better than those around you because of your wealth. You're no better than the people on the screen a few minutes ago because of your wealth. We could sum all all of that up by saying, don't have a false sense of self-importance. Secondly, don't have a false sense of self-security. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now, we know this truth. Riches are here today, gone the next. Paul even said it to us uh, earlier in that earlier paragraph. Yeah, listen, ultimately, you brought nothing into the world. You're not going to take anything out. No security to be found in riches. And all the commentaries 
talked about it and gave illustrations. One commentary I have records the story of a meeting held in Chicago and at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in 1923. Mark that date, 1923. At the meeting were nine of the world's wealthiest men. Nine of, I mean, they were the top of the 1%. Included presidents of the world's largest steel, gas, and utility companies. The world's greatest wheat speculator. The president of the New York Stock Exchange. A member of the U.S. president's cabinet. A Wall Street tycoon. The head of the world's largest, the world's largest monopoly. And the president of an international bank. Those are the nine guys. These men could have anything that money could buy. Oh, and there was one other thing that they held in common. It was 1923, and so within the next decade, they lost everything, all of them. They lost everything that they had. President of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, by the way, if you have your investments there, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died bankrupt. The president of the largest gas company went insane. The president of the largest utility died in a foreign land because he was a fugitive from justice and he was also penniless. The great wheat speculator also died abroad and insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, well, we always have to blame somebody. Got to blame the crash on somebody. He was sent to the infamous Sing Sing Penitentiary. The member of the president's cabinet had to be eventually pardoned from prison himself so he could go home to die. The Wall Street tycoon, the head of the world's largest monopoly, and the president of the International Bank all committed suicide. There you go. There's the nine richest people in the world. We all know stories like that. I could tell them by the dozens. Famous Black Monday on October 19, 1987. Investors ended up jumping from their windows. The real estate crash uh, in 2008. People lost trillions on paper. I did, not trillions. I lost a few thousand. Rich people, don't fix your hope on uncertain riches. Proverbs 23 says it this way, don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Floats away. Riches cannot be trusted. Ask Job. Brings us to our second point. That's, that's all what we don't do, but what do we do? Well, we are believers, so first, we don't place our hope or trust in riches. We place our hope in God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. But here he is saying, don't focus on the gifts, enjoy them, that's fine, but don't set your hope in them. Instead, fix your hope on the giver. You catch that? Don't focus on the gifts, focus on the giver. Fix your hope on God. Wheaton President Philip Ryken, in his commentary, said it this way, all prosperity comes from him. Daily bread comes from him, not from a paycheck. Tuition payments come from him, not from a scholarship fund. Security for old age comes from him, not from a retirement account. Thus, the only place to put all true confidence is in God, in whom we have everything that we need. After all, our money says it. Whether you spend a quarter, a dime, a nickel, or a penny, they all say the same thing. In God we trust. Or do we? Second verse 
18, instruct the rich, I love this, to do good. And he clarifies that with a play on words. I, words, I want the rich to be rich in good deeds, in good works. You see, that is where real, real wealth is found. Not in the stuff that money can buy, but in doing good in the name of Christ. Notice here that true wealth is ultimately found not in the size of your bank account, but in the richness of your deeds. Did you catch that? True wealth is found not in the size of your bank account, but in the richness of your deeds. In other words, you can be rich without a penny to your name. Just as you are rich in material goods, he says, be rich in good works. In other words, rich Christians, let me, let me just... Make that easy for us. American Christians are to be generous Christians. Think of it this way. Stole it from somebody, I don't remember who. Paul wants to use our gain as a means to godliness rather than our godliness as a means of gain. He wants us to use our, our gain as a means of godliness rather than our godliness as a means of gain. After all, that is being Christ-like. Because 2 Corinthians 8 says it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Interesting that most agree here that Paul was actually talking to people who were so rich they didn't have to work. Retired people. <laughs> Because they could rely on their wealth and they could take it easy, play golf, you know, go fishing. Paul says be rich in good works. Don't spend all those retirement years where you have money and, and, and social security and self-security and all that. Don't spend it on yourself. Nothing wrong with golf. Maybe something wrong with fishing. But, but, but make sure, boring, make sure that you... I said that for Doug in the back. Make sure that you intentionally are committed to good works. And, and what do these good works look like? Well, he tells us. They at least include being gener generous and ready to share. We need to stop right there for just a moment. Back in 2 Corinthians 9, where the, the context is sacrificial financial giving, Paul says this. He says this to you. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so, so that ha always having all sufficiency in everything, you may also have, you can have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, He gives you financially so that you can be taken care of, and you can have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, He can do more than that. He's going to supply and multiply your seed for what? Why are we rich? For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's why you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. The very reason that God blesses believers materially is so that we can, in turn, be in a material blessing to others, so that we can be generous and ready to share. I dare say one of the reasons God has blessed us as a nation is not so that we can become the richest nation on earth and like almost every category, but so that we can use those very riches to bless others and thereby make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. The problem is this. We have become increasingly non-Christian, and, and, and the worldview of, of, of non-believers has begun to infiltrate the church, and well, they're even teaching that you're godly to get rich. Hey, forget 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
God wants you to be rich. Why? We've not only begun to fix our eyes on our wealth as if we deserve it, then we begin to hoard it, and then we begin to use it for ourselves. And our wealth has actually turned us away from God. As believers, we should use our wealth to bless others, especially those, I say this unabashedly without apology, especially those of the Christian faith. This is what the early church did. Read through the beginning of the book of Acts and you find there that there was no needy person among them because those who had gave so that those who did not have could have. They sold houses, lands, and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet who in turn took care of the poor among them. And this then became attractive to those outside the church. We should not have poor people among us. This is actually the context of Matthew chapter 25, the least of these, the least of these who, my brothers and sisters. We're supposed to take care of each other. Brings us to our third and final point. What is the result of rich people being rich in good works, of being generous and ready to share? Verse 19, very quickly, as the rich are generous, they are, quote, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Paul here mixes his metaphor just a little bit. It can become a bit confusing, but the meaning is clear enough. As you do good works, you are investing in the future. You are laying, there's that mixed metaphor, you are laying a foundation. The return on your investment will not necessarily, in fact, will not be material gain, but you are laying a good foundation for your future in heaven. The scripture never shies away from holding out reward as an impetus to do good works, and so neither will I. You will have real treasure in heaven as you do good materially. That's the context, as you do good materially here. Notice the intentional contrast with verse 17. Those who are rich, materially rich in this present world, can be rich in the world to come by being generous and storing up treasure in heaven. This is a good thing. It's a good ROI. It's a good return on your investment. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 6, right? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, and rust destroy and where thieves break into steel. In other words, there is, no, um, uh, th- 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 there is no hope in riches. This is the uncertainty of riches. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Thieves don't break in and steal. Don't, that's, where we want, that's where we want our treasure to be. And you can actually send financial treasure ahead. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My brothers and sisters, I am challenging you. I'm encouraging you, just as Paul encouraged me to do as a pastor. Be generous. Be generous. And by doing so, you are laying up treasures in heaven. Let me be clear. Paul is not suddenly changing his theology and saying, you get into heaven by good works. You you get into heaven by grace through faith and the finished work of Christ. It has always been by grace through faith. But then, having been saved, we become workers as followers of Christ, thus proving the reality of our faith. And we see here one way to work is by putting our relative wealth to work in the kingdom. And by our good works, we are laying up treasures in heaven. Not only that, look at the very last phrase as we close. So that they may take hold of that which is life. Indeed, I find that incredibly interesting. I mean, 
we look at the rich. We have, we have television shows so you can look at the rich. They can help you covet. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. And we look at them and perceive them to be richer than us. And we typically say something like, now that's the life. Wouldn't that be great to live in luxury and be pampered and relax and fun? Ah, that's the life. And Paul says, no, no. By being generous with what God has given us, that's the life. Then we will lay hold of that which is life indeed. Certainly he's talking about eternal life. But we can enjoy some measure of the benefits of eternal life right now. We can lay hold hold of it. That is life indeed. It's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Let me sum up what Paul is saying about wealth in these paragraphs in 1 Timothy 6 with the words of John Stott. Against materialism, Paul said simplicity of lifestyle, <laughs> being okay with food and shelter, Against asceticism, denying God's good gifts, and I will not have them. He sets, he sets gratitude for God's creation. Against covetousness, wanting, wanting it, man, wanting to get rich, he sets contentment with what you have. Against selfishness, he sets generosity in imitation of, of God. Simplicity, commitment, generosity, he says, constitute healthy Christian Stand for prayer. Father, the intent of the passage is not to make us feel guilty, but to encourage us and to urge us to be generous people with our, with our works and with our money. You've given us so much, and it's not so that we can eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, but it's so that we can Spend your resources on people around us so there are no needy people among us here and around the world, brothers and sisters, and, and, and so that we can make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. Help us to do that, I pray in Christ's name.